0: Well, the kids did a great job of sharing what we normally look at as a nativity. That's the title of my message this morning. Um, We're going to look at the nativity. First of all, what does that word mean, nativity? It simply means the occurrence of a person's birth. Each one of us had a nativity. There was a time when each one of us was born. That was our nativity. When we speak about the nativity, we're usually speaking about the occurrence of the birth of Jesus. What was it like? Slide two, please. What was it like? This is a picture that we often see in some form or another. Beautiful. Beautiful picture. Is that what the nativity looked like? Is that what you think it looked like? How much of this picture is biblically accurate scripturally correct go to the next slide would you please or maybe it was more like this maybe it was more like a few shepherds mary joseph and jesus what looks like the mouth of a cave maybe a few sheep did it look like that how much of that is biblically supported but here's the real question does it matter does it matter does it really matter? Another question is, and I'm sharing a message. I shared a very similar message a few, a number of years ago, and I made reference to this a couple years ago. But I wanted to share it again because it blesses me. So I hope you're blessed as I'm blessing myself. Where did our concept of the nativity come from? When you think of the nativity of the birth of Christ, what picture comes to your mind? And then the question is, where did that picture come from? We're going to look and see what's scriptural in just a few minutes. But I want to remind us, first of all, a little bit about what we talked about last week in terms of preparing the announcement of John the Baptist before the announcement of Jesus the Messiah. And we took a look last week at all of the temple worship, all of the temple sacrifice. We looked at Zechariah, the priest specifically, who was was, uh, John the Baptist's father. And we, we looked at how God orchestrated so many details for him to be there, to be the one priest out of about 20,000 priests at that time in Israel. And on that particular day, he was the one priest who got to go into the, the holy place, not the holy of holies, the holy place. And he got to go right up next to the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The place where God's presence was. And he brought the, the incense and got to put it on the altar of incense, representing the people's prayers ascending to heaven. All of the things that he orchestrated. We also talked about the sacrifices that took place. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, all the animals who were killed on that brazen altar, the big altar, before you got in to the holy place. They would bring the animal, and if I, a, if I brought a lamb, the last thing I'd do before I hung, handed it to the priest was I'd put my hand, the hand on the head of that animal, symbolic of me placing my sin on that animal. And the animal would then be ceremoniously sacrificed, the cutting of its throat. It was bound when they handed it to the priest. And as gruesome as it all is, everything pointed to Jesus the Messiah. Everything they'd been doing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. And as I think about that, it just strikes me the way I think, I guess. What an amazing God. Every detail. It just increases the awe I have of, of the way he must see things that we can't even grasp. That he can orchestrate all these things when he wants to. For his specific needs. The timing, the people, all of it put in place. So I sometimes find myself wondering did he do the same thing when it came to the birth of Jesus? Did he do the same thing in the birth of Jesus? And and do we sometimes miss the significance of what he was trying to reveal to us? Now, last week, you may remember, we we looked at Scripture, but I admit and I tell you up front, that a lot of the information that we came to fill in the gaps about the ceremonial things came from ancient Hebrew texts, ancient Hebrew writings. And this week, a lot of what I'm going to share for, with you is going to come from Scripture, but a lot of it's going to come from these ancient Hebrew texts. The Hebrew text, and there's, there's a number of them, and I don't expect you to remember them, and you probably don't even want to, but I'm going to just mention them So you can see that I'm just not pulling this out of the air somewhere, okay? When you look at some of the Hebrew texts, some of them you may have heard of. First of all, the Tanakh. The Tanakh is simply, basically, our Old Testament. That would have been the Bible in their day. A little bit of different order of the books, but not a lot of difference in content. The Tanakh. Then there is what is called the Torah, We hear that word sometimes when we're we're talking and hearing about Islam, the Torah. The Torah actually could, could contain or be a number of different things. It could just be the first five books of the Bible. Or it could be the first five books of the Bible plus rabbinic or rabbis commentaries on the scripture. Like we might look at a commentary. The Torah may actually contain some of the rabbis teaching of what some of the things in there meant. Or in the broadest sense, the Torah could actually mean all Jewish writings. So the Torah, the Tanakh. Last week I mentioned the Mishnah, and that was the first time they started to write down all of the oral traditions of the rabbis. For centuries, so much of this was just orally transmitted from one generation to the next generation. And when it came to the Mishnah, they they started to write it down so it wouldn't be lost. There's something called the Midrash. And it was a commentary that was actually attached to the Torah. Again, it would be the teaching. It would be like if in our Bible, and lots and lots of us have study Bibles, right? When you open the study Bible, you see the the scriptures that we call the the actual Bible. And then either at the bottom of the page or maybe in a column in the middle, we see commentary. The commentary is not scripture, but it's an explanation of the Bible. And that's what the Midrash was. It was actually a commentary, sometimes attached right to the Bible. And then there's the Talmud which was the written and oral Torah, all put together. And then what's called the Targums, again, it was a paraphrase. Remember, even in the early days, the Hebrew, the Hebrew, there came a time when the people quit speaking Hebrew. Aramaic was becoming the language. So even way back then, they had to translate from the Hebrew to the Aramaic, Aramaic and that was, they were, those were called the Targums. How many of you are really excited about that so far? All right. Very reliable, very historical, but they're not Scripture. Okay? But a lot of what I'm going to share with you comes from those reliable historical books. And if you would ever like, I can give you chapter and verse from what I have in my office. And then I used a book called uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, written in the late 1800s by a man by the name of Alfred Edersheim. And he wrote a book based on all of this ancient Hebrew information. A little bit clumsy to read, but lots of interesting points. So I say all that to set the stage for what I want to share as we go ahead and look at what we might call the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. A lot of it uh, was already read by Natalie this morning. I should have her come and read it again. She did a great job. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the, them in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there was, has been a Savior born for you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is well pleased. And it came about, when the angels had gone away from them unto heaven, that the shepherds began saying one to another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste, and found their way to Mary and Joseph, and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as had been told to them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would Take the things that I am going to share and give us greater understanding and revelation. Father, I thank you that we can look at your word and have total trust and confidence in your word. Lord, I thank you for the, the writings of the early fathers. Father, though they not be your word, they can give us pictures of what it was like in this case where Luke wrote this gospel. Lord, I pray that no confusion could enter in, in Jesus' name. Amen. What do we know for sure from what I just read? Well, we know that they were coming from Nazareth. We know that they were going to Bethlehem, which is called the city of David. Bethlehem, Euphrata. There is two Bethlehems, so it was specifically Bethlehem, Euphrata. It's just south of Jerusalem, roughly four and a half, five miles. Very close, hour, hour and a half, 15 minutes walk. There was a Bethlehem to the north, but it specifically told us what Bethlehem they were headed to. On their way from Nazareth, they would have passed right through Jerusalem and going on to Nazareth or onto Bethlehem. We know that's for sure where they were. We know that it says there was a firstborn. We know this was the Virgin Mary's firstborn child. We know that they wrapped him in cloths, and we know that they laid him in a manger. Whatever that word really means. It can mean about three, four things at least. It could mean simply a stall. It could actually mean a feed trough. Or it could mean the whole facility. We don't know for sure. All we know is it was translated manger. We know that he was born in Bethlehem Bethlehem, as the Messiah, called Christ the Lord. And we know that the shepherds were given a sign in verse 12. And that sign was that he would be wrapped in cloths and he would be found in this manger. We also know if we would look to Matthew, and I'm not going to spend the time to go there to Matthew, but one of the the misconceptions that we have from wherever we got our idea of what the nativity looked like is about the kings or wise men. We have no idea how many there were. It doesn't tell us. And believe it or not, they didn't show up at the manger. You can read in, in Matthew you'll read that they came to visit the child, not a baby, in a house. And they brought and gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Thus, we all assume there must have been three. And there may have been, but we don't know. But we can be pretty well certain that they went to the child, which in our mind, that word would be like a toddler. There's a different word for a baby and a different <laughs> word for a toddler. A child. At a house. And we can pretty well guess that it might have been almost two years after the birth, because as you continue to read in Matthew, and you're familiar probably with the story of Herod, when the, after the wise men came, he, he wanted to know when they saw the star. They told him when they saw the star. He told them, hey, go find the baby so I can come and worship him too, or the child so I can come and worship him too. Uh, God spoke to them and said, don't do that, go home whatever way. And when Herod found that out, he got mad, and he gave a decree. I want you to go and kill all the male babies, all the male children under two years of age in the region of Bethlehem. That's another thing that we we don't understand. The city of Bethlehem, where we're looking at today, if you look at a map, wasn't necessarily located there. It was actually, they found a lot of ruins of ancient Bethlehem about a mile north and east of the city where it's currently at. And the region was referred to as Bethlehem, not just the city. That's not so weird. You know, we support a ministry down in Mexico, right? It's located in Oaxaca, Oaxaca. The state of Oaxaca, the city of Oaxaca. Bethlehem, the city. Bethlehem, the region. So all of a sudden, all these specifics that we think are maybe so specific aren't quite so specific after all. So we do know that they were there, and that was where he was born. We know the wise men showed up probably two years later. It's interesting, if you look in the New Testament, there is absolutely nowhere. Go ahead and put slide number two back on. What's biblical in that picture? Almost nothing. Nothing. Does that mean it couldn't have been that way? No, not necessarily. But if we're going to be scriptural about only thing that's uh, that's biblical in there are Mary and Joseph and a child. Shoot, we don't even know if there was straw in the manger. Nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us there were donkeys or chickens or or animals. It doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us there was camels. We know for sure that the, the wise men weren't there. We don't know how many shepherds showed up. We don't even know if there were sheep following the shepherds to the manger. Shoot, we don't even know what the manger really looked like. Where did all our information come from? Church? Movies? Hallmark? (laughs) The live nativity scenes that we all go to and love? There's nothing wrong with any of those things. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, wonder what it really looked like. Did God have some symbolism? Did he have some types? Did he have something he was showing us way more to reveal, like he did with all of the the temple worship, the the Messiah and his mission? And it just seems weird to me that God who was such a God of detail, the God who formed this human body with all the detail, didn't have some more plan than just throwing a party at the birth of a baby. Go to the next slide, number three again. Did it look more like that? my mind, probably yes. Probably yes. In that area of Bethlehem, there are lots of small caves that were used as mangers or shelters. And some of them do have, even in the archaeological finds, they found they have the smooth little arched, Stone where it would be a feed trough or a manger. The word, as I said earlier, could simply mean a stall. And we do know Mary and Joseph were there. We do know Jesus arrived. And we do know shepherds came. And that's pretty much about what we know from Scripture. So as we look to history, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of historical background, and then we'll go back and look at what the nativity may have been. Notice, may have been. My disclaimers are stuck in there. You'll have to decide if it increases your awe and wonder like it does mine. Would you put up the map first? I think it's slide four. You aren't going to be able to probably read that from the very back, but I wanted to put that one up first just to show you. Nazareth is way up on the top. That's where Mary and Joseph came from, the region of Nazareth. And I don't know if you can see the dotted line or not, but it comes down from Nazareth to Sychar, right there in the center, then it continues all the way down to Jerusalem. That would have been a road through the, the, the valleys, the mountains, or big hills, mountains, and they would have went to Jerusalem. And at the bottom, if you can't see it because of the drum thing, you'll see it on the next picture, Bethlehem's just below it. Go ahead to the next slide. This is a close-up of just Jerusalem, Bethlehem. You see Bethany. That's where Lazarus and his Martha and Mary lived. We see Bethlehem to Jerusalem is about four and a half miles. And the region around Bethlehem is, is, it slopes especially to the east. It will slope down to the Dead Sea. Pasture land, lots and lots of pasture land. When Luke's original audience would have heard him make reference to Bethlehem, the first thing that they would have had in their mind was the shepherds watching sheep. Bethlehem, because of the understanding of the Hebrew temple worship, because they understood what took place there, would have, they immediately would have known that when you say Bethlehem, you are saying shepherds and sacrificial lambs. Think about it for a minute. During Passover especially, they would sacrifice tens of thousands of lambs just during the Passover. Every week, or every day of every week, there had to be two spotless lambs, male lambs. One at the morning sacrifice, one at the evening sacrifice. Every single day. Now, that's not near as many as Passover, but every day. So there would have to be somewhere around 730 lambs of that pure, spotless, male lamb that would be sacrificed. And they were raised in the, the, the hills and valleys around Bethlehem, especially to the northeast of Bethlehem. Almost all the way up to Jerusalem, you could find these flocks of temple sheep. The shepherds that were taking care of them, a lot of the the ancient Hebrew writings referred to them as uh, shepherd priests. And they refer to them that way because they had to know exactly how to take care. So they have been trained. Some think they were actually Levites, the the priestly family, but they had to be trained so that these lambs were treated just right, making sure they didn't hurt themselves or get damaged or get broken limbs or whatever. They had to care for them in a specific way, handle them in a specific way. And because of that, they had a a big tower that they would have. At the top of that tower, it was like a lookout. And with that lookout, they could look down in the valleys and see if there's any of their natural predators coming, even as they're walking and watching. But beneath that tower, kind of the bottom of the tower, go ahead and put the next slide up. It would look something like that, probably taller. If you can see at the bottom, it's built into the side of the mountain. It would have been a cave, and this cave this particular one that's in the scriptures, we can go all the way back to Genesis. And there's one that's called Migdal Eder. And it's actually a place we see in the Old Testament in Genesis. We see it. It's the place, those of you that are familiar with some of the Bible characters, when Jacob and Rachel were traveling and she was pregnant, Rachel, his wife, gave birth to Benjamin, and she died during birth and is buried in Migdal Eder. So this tower has got a lot of history throughout Scripture. And in the bottom of that tower would be the birthing room for the ewes. And they would bring the pregnant ewes into the birthing room, and the priestly shepherds would help the ewes as they birthed their lambs. And what they would do, because they were lambs have a tendency to kind of thrash around when they're newborns, and some of you know more about this than I, they would take and wrap the used the baby lambs, excuse me, in swaddling claws, and then they would lay them over in the feed trough area until they would calm down. These claws, history tells us that they were made from discarded, used- up priestly garments, and they were the same claws that they would then buying the lamb with when they took it to be slaughtered and offered at the sacrifice. Amazing history of what took place in these pastures out in the Bethlehem area. The priests, or shepherd priests that took care of them, the details that they, they had to follow. And there were so many, many of these. question I have is, Could Megdal Edar be the birthplace of Jesus? Is there any reason to think that that may be where he was born? Let's look at verse 12 of Luke chapter 2. Short verse. It says this, and this will be a sign. Who is the angel speaking to? shepherds. This is the angel sent from God. He says, this will be a sign for you. You'll find this baby, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. How is this a sign? Think about that for a second. If this is just a random group of shepherds, in a random place out in the pastures with their sheep, and the angel comes and says, as, as they're recovering from being scared to death, he says, I'm going to give you a sign. Listen closely. Here's the sign. There is a Savior who, who is Christ the Lord. There is a Messiah who is being born tonight, and I'm here to tell you. I'm going to give you a sign so you can go and find him. The sign is this. You will find the baby wrapped in claws, swaddling claws, and lying in a manger. Okay. Can you narrow it down just a little bit? Are these mangers, where are they located? How are we going to find it? Do we go door to door? Do we hope we find the right inn? I believe those shepherds knew exactly what the angel said and exactly what he meant. When that angel said, I, this will be assigned to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Bingo, I know what that means. You're going to find him in a manger. What manger? The manger where we go and wrap all the baby ewes when they're born that are going to be the sacrificial lambs at the temple. And he's going to be laid there in a manger. Personally, I like this picture a lot better because it's not a dirty stable. They had to keep that place ceremonially clean. This was their training. This was their job. There's a whole other story, part of this, that I just don't have to get get into. But even in the translation of the word in, it's also translated in Scripture as the guest, somewhere in my notes I have it, guest chamber. Think about this for a second. They were headed to Bethlehem because that was the city of David, their ancestor. They were going to the family home, where there would probably be guest rooms and a guest chamber. But people were coming from all over. So even if they went to the family home, there was probably no room. Oh yeah, and add this, it says it was the time of her birth. If you know anything about the Jewish law, you know that whenever there is an issue of blood for any reason, the woman is ceremonially unclean. And any place in the house where that woman is, is ceremonially unclean. And anybody in the house with that woman is ceremonially unclean for seven days. Mary and Joseph, the house is full. You're going to have child. There's this amazing place called Migdal Adair that you could go and have this child. Hypothetical, based on the ancient text. But probably the most convincing thing, and I know some of you are just not going to like this. There is a mistranslation that changes nothing doctrinal. It changes no principle of the scriptures whatsoever. But it shows you how one little translation can kind of impact the meaning of a sentence. The word that's translated, you will find a baby lying in... A manger. Go to uh, the slide that's got the stuff they're really going to love. There you are. Did that make your day or what? Every single word in the Bible has a Strong's Concordance number. Every word. The smallest word to the biggest word. The Strong's Concordance number for the word that's translated A is Number 3588. You'll look it up in Strong's Concordance. It tells you what it means. And I know, don't lose me. Don't don't lose it here. (laughs) Give me 30 seconds. Ho, H-O. The masculine, feminine, and neutral forms of it are in all of the inflections where that word is ever used. It is the definite article, the, T-H-E, the, In King James, it's the, or this, or that, or one, or he, or she, or it. Very specific. It got translated A. Let's look at that scripture again and put the word the in there. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in the manger. Those shepherds, if they are the shepherds that are watching the temple sheep and the temple flocks. If they are the ones that actually took the ewes when they lambed to Migdal Eder for the birthing of that ewe, they would have known in an instant where it was. And what would they have done? They would have got up quickly and they would have went right directly to where the signs told them to go. Could it have been Migdal Eder? Typically or typically as a type, as a picture, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Would God reveal the Messiah and the mission of the Messiah with such detail? I'm sending my son to earth. He is going to be born. As John the Baptist declared to a couple of his disciples, behold, there goes the Lamb of God. Would it not be so typical to be born in the manger, the cave, Magdala Dare, where all those sheep that were going to be sacrificed for the sin of the people of Israel would have been born. What a picture. What a picture. If this is right. If it's right. It just makes me want to slap my forehead and go, wow, God, you are amazing. But, Most of what I shared with you came from the ancient text, not from the Bible. So we're not going to build any doctrine around it. But to me, it makes such sense. But as much as it interests me, let me come back to the question I asked at the very beginning Does it matter? In the big scope of things, it really doesn't matter where he was born it doesn't matter what day he was born on. What matters is he was born and that he came to earth God in the flesh. And because of that, as much as I, I get into this kind of thing, as much as it interests me, what's really important, what really excites me, we sang about this morning. The reality, of because of what he did and who he was, I am a child of God. I've been born again by the Holy Spirit. I've been saved by grace through faith because of the shed blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who died on a cross for me, that I can live with a certain hope that one day I'm going to spend eternity in his presence, the Lamb of God and the Father that sent him. That's what should excite us. So I hope you found some of it interesting, but the most important thing is, is even as that little video showed, is the gift of God wasn't where he was born, how he was born, when he was born. That's not the big deal. The big deal is who he was. He was God in the flesh. And what he came to do, live a sinless life and die on a cross, take the fullness of the wrath of God and die in our place. And all we have to do is receive the gift. And if you haven't received the gift, I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter how nice you are. Doesn't matter what religious things you've done. I mean, none of us are as religious as those Jews were. But not one of those animals saved them. It just held back the wrath of God. I mean, God even got to the point where he said, Hey, your sacrifices, your religious days, they smell in my nostrils. They're not important. So if our our, our salvation is dependent upon something you've done, Or something somebody did to you or for you. I'm sorry, the only one that can do anything to you or for you is Christ. Accepting the gift of salvation. It's a gift of grace that we receive by faith. That's what Christmas is about. Let's close in prayer. Father, in the midst of all I've shared... I hope if we remember nothing else, it's how much you love us. That we are loved by you. We are loved by the creator of all that exists. You loved us so much that you provided the only sacrifice that could bring us back into a right relationship with you. That your son Jesus came to earth in the form of this baby, lived a sinless life, and yet walked to the cross and was crucified, died and buried for our sins. That he paid that price we could never pay. But on that third day, you raised him from the dead. The payment was made in full. And we have a certain hope that we too will be raised just as Christ was raised. And that we will too one day be with you forever and ever in your presence. I pray, Lord, that that message resonates in each one of our hearts. God, I pray that the love of Jesus fills our hearts. God, the love of Christ, who we are as your children, is a reality that sets us free from all the bondages of this life. And Lord, I pray, even now as we leave, that you would go before us, watch over us, keep us safe. I pray for... Safe travels for all of our friends and family members and each one here who may be traveling. Watch over us. Lord, I also pray that in the midst of all the family, all the food, all the presents, we don't forget about your presence. Don't Don't forget the real reason that we celebrate is the birth of our Savior. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.